best-selling independent author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we once again look at the Atlanta child murders. This is our fifth week looking at this particular case. And I think we probably have one or two more weeks of really diving into this before we move on to our next case. As always, before I get into the nitty-gritty of things, a uh, couple quick plugs. If you would like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, and YouTube. Just search for Ian Totten Author. I am on all of those platforms under that name. Yeah, I have a couple accounts on Twitter. I do not use them since my main account was closed down for reasons that were never made clear to me. But that's par for the course with social media sites. Uh, there was one point a few 
months back that YouTube actually pulled a few of my videos because they said I was attacking protected classes on episodes where I discussed uh, child molesters, particularly the Hissing Sid uh, episode from last season. They took great offense at that, and it wasn't until I called them out on it and actually contacted a couple friends of mine who have a much big bigger social media presence than I do and threaten to, you know, share this information all across the internet that YouTube actually relented and allowed my videos to go back up. Couple other quick plugs, uh, if you are into politics and have an open mind, uh, regardless of the side that you take on a particular issue, I'd like to recommend Malice Toward None, hosted by John Colkin and Richie Caldwell. They both have opposing political views, yet they take a surprisingly refreshing look at things and have a civil discourse about them as opposed to screaming and pointing fingers and calling one another racist or communist or whatever you label you want to apply. Again, that's Malice Toward None. It can be found on Apple Podcasts and pretty much every other podcast platform that you can find. And if you're a wrestling fan and you know anything about wrestling in the Mid-South Territory, John Colkin is part of the family that ran the Mississippi Territory. Another quick plug, uh, if you're looking for a unique book, I can want to suggest... Fallen Muse, a story collection by Sarah Scutt. It's available on Amazon and Kindle. It's a unique series of fiction-slash-horror-fantasy tales that all interconnect, and I can't recommend it enough. I know Sarah, uh, she does the covers for my books, along with her husband, and their company, Hollow Creek Design, who are on Facebook if you're looking for some really good artwork. Uh, so check her out on Amazon and Kindle. Again, that's Fallen Muse, a story collection by Sarah Scutt. Now all that's out of the way, get yourself something to drink, sit back in a chair, close your eyes. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. So we left off last week uh, talking about how the killings in Atlanta had shifted focus. They were no longer going after, you know, young boys and teenagers, but had instead shifted to individuals who were in their late teens and early 20s. We also talked about the benefit concert that was held at the Atlantic Civic Auditorium that was headlined by Frank Sinatra, at which Wayne Williams' father was on stage taking pictures of the stars. So it's obvious, you know, the Hollywood is starting to take note of what is going on in Atlanta. A lot of songs were recorded and put out concerning the... Atlanta child murders, uh, the federal government in the form of President Ronald Reagan even started taking notice of what was happening in Atlanta. I talked earlier about the funds that were pouring into the city of Atlanta to cover, you know, the task force and the reward money. Um, a lot of the families saw very little of any of the money as far as, you know, helping to cover funeral costs and whatnot. And to the best of my knowledge, none of the money was ever paid out to, you know, individuals who helped solve the case. Uh, it, it's pretty apparent, especially looking back from, you know, 2021, that Mayor Jackson and his cronies were using this as an opportunity to bilk people of money to help, you know, fatten the city's coffers because 
they stated repeatedly that there were, um, you know, extraordinary expenses, but what they didn't divulge to the people that things like computer time were being donated by IBM, and that most of the funding for the case was coming from the city's general fund. And a few individuals who had worked for the city would later state that Atlanta was not in the dire straits that its leaders had been portraying it as being in. So it's just something I thought I would reiterate that, you know, along with this massive mismanagement of police resources and the task force, there was also this, you know, questionable handling of the funds that were raised. Now, Wayne Williams apparently had some connections to Larry Rogers. At one point, Rogers' younger brother got into a fight and was hit over the head with a 2x4, and Williams, who was listening on his police scanner, came and got the boy and brought him to a local hospital before contacting his Rogers' foster mother, uh, and he left her a business card. Further still, when Larry's younger brother and another foster son were on the run from someone who has never been made clear, Williams put them up in an apartment on Simpson Street, and he would later take the woman in what she called a big black car to find them. And the reason I bring all of this up is Larry Rogers' body was found on April 9th, 1981, and it was found in an abandoned apartment near Simpson Street. And although the apartment was in the same general proximity as the one that William supposedly hid the younger brother and the other foster son in, uh, the woman was never able to clearly state whether or not it was the same apartment, and neither of them were ever called to testify at William's trial. Although Williams said that the apartment he had hid the two youths in was about a mile from where they found Larry Rogers' body. Now, the day after Larry Rogers disappeared, remember, that was March 30th, March 31st, 1981, the body of 21-year-old Eddie Bubba Duncan was pulled from the Chattahoochee River. So he's, I believe, the third victim who has been recovered from a river at this point. This is the day after Timothy Hill's body was pulled from the same river. So, I think it's more than just coincidence that these two bodies were found not only in the same location, but so close together. Um, it almost makes me wonder if Hill had not been held uh, and then Duncan taken, and then both of them killed at the same time, and if not dropped off at the same time, you know, maybe whoever had Hill killed him with Duncan present, got rid of the body, and then decided, you know what, Duncan knows too much that so they killed him too and got rid of him. Or maybe they're completely unrelated. The police would make a stance here, um concerning the adults that they were putting on the list. Uh, Lee Brown stated that age is not a factor. This despite the fact that for well over two years they had been calling the, this case the Atlanta child murders. Well now he said that wasn't a factor in the cases and that the people who were being kidnapped, and that's his words, not mine, were small in stature. So it's pretty obvious to see that the police don't grasp or understand why these killings are happening. Even after it came out that Duncan had been a friend of Patman Rogers years beforehand, the police still refused to see these connections between the victims. The next victim to disappear was a 23-year-old by the name of Michael 
McIntosh. He vanished on March 25th. If you'll remember, McIntosh is the one who... He was an ex-convict that lived near uh, Cap and Pegs. He lived across the street from it. He also knew Jojo Bell and ostensibly Timothy Hill. And he's the one of the men that the owner of Cap and Pegs stated was a quote-unquote homosexual who would go off with the boys and other men. And again, it's that's just a, too much to be coincidence. You know, the police didn't see that okay, these men weren't homosexuals, they were pedophiles, and they were all hanging out together, and all these kids who were floating around with these men were dying, and now the kids are dying. And even to this day, the police don't, you know, acknowledge that that's, you know, more probably than not what was really going on. Now, the last time that McIntosh was seen was near Bankhead Highway. If you remember, this is that area where uh, the drug dealer was you know, having his way with 12-year-old Charles Steffens, who was killed back in October of 1980. Uh, the owner of this shop said that McIntosh came in, he had the crap beaten out of him, and he was crying, and he stated that he had been beaten by a group of black men, and that the men had given him $12 and showed him where the Marta bus line was. The man also stated the last time he saw him, he was heading towards the Chattahoochee River. You would think that the police would immediately start searching the Chattahoochee River, but, you know, predictably, they did not. You know, they've just pulled multiple bodies from the thing, but no, somebody saw him going that way, couldn't be in it. And also, too, with a lot of these victims that, you know, are on the list, no cause of death was ever able to be determined. A lot of that is because they were either waterlogged and bloated or they had decomposed to a point that it was impossible to tell what it was had, that had killed them. So their death certificates would say probable asphyxia, which basically means they stopped breathing uh, or unknown. On Sunday, April 19th, 1981, Around 3.30 on the banks of the South River in southeast DeKalb County, a body was found. The body ended up being the that of 15-year-old uh, Jojo Bell. couple of things about this area. It wasn't far from where Terry Pugh had been found. But also in the area was an abandoned farmhouse where a 15-year-old white girl called Mercedes Masters had been found on Christmas Day of 1979. She had been shot to death. JoJo's body was found inside the river, and according to the medical examiner's report, there was a large open field on the Rockdale County side of the river, slightly above the point where the body was found. The body was in the river, where the river takes a sharp turn south in Rockdale County, the body was floating in some debris that had become caught in the eddy currents of a cove-like area protected by fallen trees. There was considerable amount of trash as well as sticks and wood debris floating in the water and around the body. The exposed part of the body was that of the back and jockey underwear with large gaping holes was visible on the body. It was necessary to approach the body by way of a small boat. A disaster bag and clean white sheet were placed in the bottom of the boat, and the body was manually removed directly from the water and placed on the clean sheet, which was folded over the body and the dis disaster bag secured. At the scene, there was noted to be various areas of the body that were skeletonized. There were areas that had been partly eaten by, eaten by aquatic and wildlife. April 23rd, 1981, we had two victims go missing. That's 
28-year-old John Porter and 21-year-old Jimmy Ray Payne. Porter had lived with his grandmother off and on since 1988, and he had been in and out of jail a number of times over the last 15 years. It's known that he had been in the Georgia Penitentiary uh, before developing mental problems, at which point he was transferred to the Georgia Regional Hospital. He's known to have hung out in the area around uh, the McDaniel Glen Housing Project and Cap and Pegs. Somewhere around early 1980, he had been thrown out of his grandmother's home because his mental issues had become so severe she could no longer deal with him. It was also stated by his grandmother that she felt he had become a quote-unquote sissy, which in her parlance meant that he was gay and that he was engaging in sex with men, so she threw him out of the house. She also stated that on a few occasions, she caught Porter with two- and three-year-old male children that she were living with her, and he would be molesting the child, raping them. Porter went to live with his mother, and whenever the two of them got into a fight, he would go live in the abandoned apartment building next door. Of interest here is the man who lived in the apartment building was named Charles James Charles Gates. Gates is the man who had been questioned over the murder of Gypsy. Why? He drove a blue station wagon that supposedly had a butcher knife stuck through the sun visor. Porter was living in the abandoned apartment on the 23rd when someone stabbed him six times, killing him. His body was found uh, propped up on a set of steps where a house had once stood, not far from Captain Pegg's. That same day, the afternoon of the 23rd, Jimmy Ray Payne, a 21-year-old convict, went missing. Now, Payne lived in the same housing complex as... Patrick Balthazar and Patman Rogers and a few of the other victims. Uh, the seven-year-old who had gone missing from her apartment, he lived directly above her. Payne was going to meet his girlfriend at a bus stop and never showed up. A young man who was convicted for robbing a coin shop in East Point, Georgia, said that he had seen Jimmy Ray Payne at another coin shop uh, on East Ponce de Leon in Atlanta. And police grabbed a hold of this because, according to Payne's sister, he had said he was on his way to a coin shop that was located in the Omni. Although they discounted it because... Young came out and said that Payne was known to be part of a burglary ring that would rob houses of precious metals and then resell them. Why the police discounted it is not known as Payne had a criminal record for burglary. Of note, too, is that Payne did live not far from Tom Terrell's homes on Gray Street. Uh, it should also be noted that, at least according to police, Payne had attempted to take his own life on a number of occasions. One thing that they learned was that, supposedly, Payne was hustling in the seedier section of Atlanta, hustling in this case, meaning he was, you know, prostituting himself. Uh, one individual came forward and told police that he was friends with Payne and had been hired by a man who ran one of the dodgy bookstores in the area to take pictures of Payne when he was naked 
And apparently in one of these pictures, not only was Payne naked, but also someone by the name of Darren Glass. Which, if you'll remember, is a victim from the list. This guy also stated that uh, these pictures that he was paid to take were then sent to a nationwide pornography ring that was headquartered in Troy, New York, although... To the best of my knowledge, the individuals he implicated in this ring have never been revealed to the public. Uh, a few days after he went missing, Jimmy Ray Payne's body was found in the Chattahoochee River uh, at roughly 6.30 p.m. on April 27th. The area his body was discovered in is the same intersection where Michael McIntosh is was last seen alive. Something of interest concerning Payne is a man was arrested at Cap and Pegs for what was listed as simple battery. Now, in this man's possession, they found Jimmy Ray Payne's prison ID from an Atlanta prison, as well as a business card from an FBI field agent. The man named Fred Wyatt uh, said he had found them in the vicinity of the Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. He would later clarify this, stating that he found them in a trash bin outside of a liquor store, which was located on the corner of Georgia and Stewart Avenues. This liquor store, much like Cap and Pegs, had links to a lot of the victims. Um, number of them were either seen there or found dead within the vicinity of this intersection. The next victim was a 17-year-old named William Barrett, who was known on the streets as Billy Star. He was last seen on May 11th when his mother sent him across town to the McDaniel Glen Projects, which is located near the Cabin Pegs, to pay a bill. His body was found the next day uh, at Glenwood Road and Green Cove, not far from where Eric Middlebrook's body had been found, and two blocks from the home of Luby Jeter. Uh, apparently, he had been strangled as well as stabbed. Witnesses stated that they saw him returned to the East Lake Meadows area after paying the bill for his mother, after which he got into a two-door white car driven by a black man who carried a purse slung from long straps over his right shoulder. The police found one suspect who met matched this description, although there was another one who was known to pick boys up at both the Omni and the Five Points Marta station. That particular suspect was a white male. And the reason this guy was a subject is his phone number was found inside of Star's pocket, uh, and witnesses placed the two of them together at some point in March. Another witness came forward concerning this white male, stating that he had had sex with him at the, his, the man's home. Uh, also, witnesses placed Star at this man's home, um, stating that he had been seen at the man's home one week before he disappeared, at which time the suspect gave Star a bicycle for his little brother. From witness testimony at the Wayne Williams trial, uh, a witness placed Star with Wayne Williams on at least two occasions. At one point, they were seen in a home together with another group of unidentified men. Moving into May of 1981, John David Wilcoxon, then 50, finally went to trial for the child prostitution ring that he was helping to run 
And it was said at the time that over 100 young boys were involved in this sex for hire ring. If you remember, Wilcoxon lived across the street from the pool where one of the earlier victims had vanished from. Uh, he was implicated when police basically did a house-to-house search of the area and they found evidence in his home and then they found all of the photographs inside the hotel room that they turned around and said there were no pictures of black children in. It was all white boys. Um, only for witnesses to later state that they had seen numerous victims in Wilcoxon's company and uh, at his home. Along with Wilcoxon, 49-year-old man named Francis Hardy was convicted of child molestation and received a 30-year sentence. Given the time, that was unusual. Uh, Normally, uh, child sex offenders did not receive prison sentences uh, that were that stiff. So it should give you some idea as to ha- the scope of what these men were doing. While another man, 40-year-old Lionel St. Louis, pled guilty to sodomy and other charges and ended up getting a 12-year prison sentence. Of interest to us is the fact that the uh, task force stated that Wilcoxon and his cohorts had no ties to Atlanta's missing and murdered. Um, Wilcoxon's lawyer actually is on record as stating that anyone who was over 14 was not a victim of child molestation, but was in fact a male prostitute who sought Wilcoxon out, and that they were quote-unquote as guilty as he was. Wilcoxon was also sentenced to 30 years in prison. May 21st into the 22nd marked a major turning point in the case of Atlanta's missing and murdered because it was on this date that Wayne Williams first came to the attention of both the task force and the FBI. As the story goes, witnesses placed Wayne Williams in the company of 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter on the 21st, a claim that Williams has repeatedly contended is not true. According to Williams, he was out the evening of the 21st, uh, first at a club picking up some recording equipment and then trying to track down a young woman who he was supposed to have an audition with the next morning by the name of Cheryl Johnson. What is not disputed is that around 2.50 a.m. on May 22nd, Wayne Williams was driving south toward the James Jackson Parkway Bridge, which is northwest of downtown Atlanta. Unbeknownst to Williams, this bridge, along with numerous others in the area, was under police surveillance because the bodies had begun turning up in the rivers. On the south end of the James Jackson Parkway Bridge, police recruit Freddie Jacobs was stationed at street level. Now, according to Jacobs, the first idea he had that there was a vehicle on the bridge was the vehicle's headlights illuminating the trees around him. Another police recruit by the name of Bob Campbell was stationed below the bridge, on the opposite end of the bridge from Jacobs. Now, according to Campbell, they knew, he knew when a vehicle was on the bridge because there was a large metal expansion plate that ran from side to side on the bridge, And when vehicles drove over it, you heard a loud clunk, 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 clunk. Uh, Anybody who has driven on a freeway has experienced this. It's a very distinct sound. But according to Campbell, he did not hear this sound. He was under the bridge, and the next thing he knows, he hears a loud splash in the water. This was at approximately 3 a.m., 
Immediately following this, Campbell radioed Jacobs and asked him if there was a car on the bridge. The reason he did this is this section of the Chattahoochee River was known to be inhabited by beavers, which would frequently jump into the water, making splashes. Uh, Jacobs, who was actually, you know, underneath the railings, I guess, hiding out from view, actually had to lean out. And when he did, he is supposed to have seen a car approaching him at a very slow rate of speed with its lights on. According to Jacobs, the vehicle he saw was a 1970 Chevrolet Chevelle station wagon. Jacobs further stated that the station wagon came down off the bridge, drove into a parking lot of a liquor store, which was to the right of the bridge. Jacobs admitted that he had to duck down as the car drove past him in order to avoid being seen. Uh, Something of note here, according to Chet Detlinger, uh, in doing so, Jacobson would have had no view of the roadway from his position. Now, behind this liquor store, an Atlanta police officer named Carl Holden was parked in his privately owned Ford Granada, and he was using this vehicle as a chase car, meaning that if anything suspicious happened on the bridge, he was to either A, block off anyone leaving the bridge, or give chase to them. According to Holden, he saw the Chevelle Uh, make this U-turn in the parking lot and immediately began to follow the car as it headed back north over the James Jackson Parkway Bridge. Now, the timeline of events that was given at trial is that recruit Bob Campbell, who was underneath the bridge, heard the splash, then using his flashlight, looked into the water, back up, up and down, up and down, up and down, and he stated that he could see the area where the splash had occurred from the concentric rings that were spreading out, and he was eventually able to see a car up on the bridge with its headlights on, and at this point, he called the other chase car, which was on the north side of the bridge, which is the same area that Campbell was stationed on. Now, this chase car was manned by FBI agent Greg Gillian. Gillian said he saw nothing uh, and didn't hear anything, which is odd because the position he was parked in gave him a view to see anyone either coming or going from the bridge, but he stated he never saw Williams go by, which is interesting because... Williams most certainly was on the bridge. How the FBI agent did not see him is left open to debate. Was he not paying attention? Was he sitting in the car reading a book? Was he taking a nap? We may never know. After turning around in the liquor store parking lot, Williams was going back across the bridge. He had the Atlanta police trailing him. And it was at this point that FBI agent Gillian stated he saw the station wagon for the first time. Gillian then pulled out of where he was hiding and began to follow Williams, coming in between uh, the suspect's car and that of the Atlanta police officer. From here, Williams swung onto the on-ramp to Interstate 285. It was at this point that Williams was pulled over. Now, apparently, Agent Greg Gillian got out of his vehicle and began shouting at Williams, FBI, FBI, at which point Williams stepped from the station wagon and walked to the back of the vehicle in order to meet the agent. There are a number of different stories about this stop. Um, One officer states that when he was pulled over, they asked Williams why they were pulling him over, and he is supposed to have said that it was because of the Atlanta child murders. Now, according to Williams, 
He did, in fact, say this, but the reason he said it was because the man identified himself as an FBI agent, and there was the only reason he could fathom an FBI agent would be pulling him over on a Georgia road. That bit actually makes sense to me, because why else would an FBI agent be pulling somebody over? Now, according to Williams, at this point, no one advised him of his Miranda rights before they began talking to him. Again, there's no way to prove whether they did one way or the other. It's known that Williams was questioned that morning on the side of the road for close to two hours. At this point, the FBI agent is supposed to have bent down and picked up either a length of rope or a length of wire that was lying behind Williams' car, and Williams is supposed to have told the agent to remember where you got that. The FBI agent and the police received Williams' permission to look inside of his vehicle, and inside they found a pair of shoes and several bags of clothing, Although, the bags were not gone through at that point. According to Williams, when he was being questioned, he saw helicopters going up and down the Chattahoochee River with their spotlights aimed on the water. Eventually, the supervisors of these law enforcement officials instructed them to let Williams go as they had nothing to detain him on. The story that Williams had told them, which I have already briefly covered, is that he had been looking for an address from this Cheryl Johnson, who was supposed to have a tryout with him the following morning. Um, And he gave the police this phone number, which proved to not lead anywhere, despite the fact that Williams stated he may have mistransposed the number when he wrote it around. The police did try numerous variations of the number that he gave them, uh, all to no effect. They even tried locating the area where Williams said that this Cheryl Johnson was supposed to live, Uh, but they found no trace of her. After leaving, Williams stated that he was heading back to the San Suchi, which was a nightclub, which is where he had been earlier in the evening. In the days after this stop, Wayne Williams and his father, Homer, were seen doing a rather large cleanup around their house removing boxes from the premises which have never been found, as well as burning photographs and negatives in a fire pit in their backyard. It's interesting to note regarding all of this that the boxes that they carted off were, according to the Williams, full of books and other bric-a-brac, and Homer Williams told one investigator that he drove some of them to a dumpster near a school and another to a dumping area off of Industrial Avenue, the same dumping ground that the bicycle of 14-year-old Milton Harvey was found at. When pressed for directions, Homer Williams was unable to give them, stating he only knew how to drive there, and when asked if he would drive the investigator to the dumping ground, He further stated that he probably couldn't find it now. As for the negatives and the photographs, according to both of the Williamses, these photographs and negatives were ones that had not come out right or were ruined and that they just didn't need. Things went quiet concerning the Williams after this. On Sunday, May 24th, 1981, another body was removed from the Chattahoochee River. The body was found to be that of 27-year-old Nathaniel Carter, who had been living at the Falcon Hotel downtown near the bus terminal. Uh... Carter was the man who had lived above seven-year-old uh, Tanya Wilson. 
So, correcting what I said a few minutes ago, uh, Jimmy Ray Payne lived in, in the same housing complex as a number of the victims, but it was Nathaniel Carter who actually lived above the seven-year-old girl who was kidnapped from inside of her ground-floor apartment. Now, according to the Fulton County Medicals Examiner, Carter had been dead for two or three days. So, roughly, he died somewhere around the 21st or the 22nd, which is conveniently the same date that Wayne Williams had been pulled over following the infamous splash. Although, witnesses later stated that they had seen Carter alive on both the 22nd and the 23rd. Uh, his death was listed as either strangulation or possible asphyxiation, although one pathologist did go on the record as stating that his death could have been attributed to heart problems, as Carter was known to give his blood at blood banks for money very frequently, and this could have put undue strain on his heart, leading to a possible heart attack. Another possible cause of death was that he may have drowned. In any event, it was around this time that the task force really began looking at Wayne Williams as their number one suspect. This despite the fact that Williams was a fairly small man. I've read things stating that he is roughly, you know, 5'5", you know, maybe 125 pounds soaking wet, while Nathaniel Carter was much larger than him. It should also be noted that Nathaniel Carter was described as a slick hustler who would try and get away with anything and also a man who routinely stayed drunk at all hours. Carter was known to Michael McIntosh, another of the adult victims on the list, in that they both worked out of the same labor pool and were at the labor pool on the same day, the last time that McIntosh is known to have worked. While looking into Nathaniel Carter, the police also learned that he was known to hang around with quote-unquote homosexuals and to engage in acts with them. A witness stated to police uh, that he had seen Carter's roommate, a man by the name of John Henley, scared and crying, and Henley had told the man that he feared he would be killed next. The man also stated that the week before Carter turned up dead, Henley had told him that a white man dressed in a luxurious gray three-piece suit and carrying a briefcase, who was accompanied by a large black man dressed in expensive clothing came to their motel room looking for Carter five or six different times, although no trace of either man has ever turned up. There were stories floating around that the reason that Nathaniel Carter had been murdered is that he was involved in a robbery of a place that Jimmy Ray Payne had worked at and that the they had taken a safe from this building and actually gotten rid of it in the Chattahoochee River. Uh, not something that the police have investigated to the best of my knowledge, nor is it something that was brought up at trial. Nathaniel Carter's mother would testify she had seen her son in a park with Wayne Williams and Wayne Williams' German Shepherd dog. Uh, but prior to this, she had done an interview with the local media where she stated that the date that she saw this was May 25th, which, if you've been paying attention, is actually after Carter's body was found. 
On May 27th, a supposedly secret meeting was held by Lee Brown and the top investigators of the task force. Uh, And during this meeting, which the media was privy to, he informed them that they still had no leads or suspects in any of the killings. He further stated that they, quote-unquote, do not have a lot of information to give out before going on and adding that the task force was indeed in a crisis situation. We do not know who we were looking for. We do not know the problem we are facing, the fact that we have 29 unsolved cases. We are doing everything we possibly can to bring closure to this prolonged tragedy. On June 3rd of 1981, Wayne Williams, who was in a phone booth uh, talking with someone who has not been identified, was approached by two FBI agents who informed him that they wanted to question him. Uh, Conflicting reports came out after this, uh, stating that the FBI had bugged Williams station wagon with the FBI themselves stating that they had planned on planting the devices inside of Williams' car while he was being questioned. At any event, he agreed to go down with to the Atlanta field office with them and he ended up signing a waiver of his rights. Williams ended up being questioned for over 12 hours and after his release, uh, Brown, the head of the task force, stated that the man was not a suspect. A bunch of things happened at this point. Um, Lee Brown asked the media to withhold the individual who was no longer a suspect's name. And somehow the media learned of the initial stop on the night of the bridge incident. Also, too, newspapers around the country began reporting headlines that the Atlanta monster had been seized, which was not the case. And while some news reports did not give Williams' name while talking uh, about the questioning, they did, in other instances, release his name publicly, and this led to really a media firestorm in the city of Atlanta. This was further fanned when Williams, around 7 a.m. on June 4th, invited reporters into his parents' home for a news conference. Williams' ground rules were no cameras were allowed, but tape recorders were permitted. During this interview, he handed out copies of his resume. Williams stated he did not know any of the victims or their families, but said he was considered a prime suspect. When asked what he thought about the murders, Williams stated, You may have, to me, just a bunch of murders. I mean, some of them may be connected. I worked with kids a while, and some of these kids are in places... They don't have any business being at certain times of day and night. Some of them don't have any kind of home supervision, and they're just running around in the streets wild. That's not giving anybody a license to kill, but you're opening yourself up for all kinds of things. I just feel some of these parents just needs to tighten up and get strict on these kids. Williams stated that the FBI had flat out stated to him that he had killed Nathaniel Carter, which Williams denied. One discrepancy was that was noted is that Williams said that on the night he was stopped near the bridge, the police accused him of killing Nathaniel Carter, which, as we know, could not have been the case Uh, as the police did not yet know that Carter was dead. Um, This may have been a Freudian slip on Williams' part, although he has claimed that there was a question asked of him during this whole period of the interview in which he was responding, but that this question had not been picked up by any of the tape recorders. 
Williams also claimed that he had a retained a lawyer at this point, although this would be proven to be unfactual. Williams would not get a lawyer until after he gave this interview. And the lawyer he had retained was 39-year-old Mary Walcom, who gave an interview with reporters stating that he had been harassed by the news media and that he was a non-suspect suspect. On June 12th of 1981, Walcom would go to the U.S. District Court in Atlanta and seek a restraining order against 17 different news organizations and nine public officials, including Maynard Jackson, Lee Brown, and FBI agent in charge John Glover. She charged that Williams had been the subject of a quote-unquote blitzkrieg of media harassment in and around his home. These restraining orders ended up being denied. At this point, the news media pretty much camped out on Wayne Williams' uh, front porch uh, in the streets around his home, waiting for you know either statements from him and his family or from you know something from the police concerning him. And both the police and the media started getting information about Wayne Williams from various individuals in and around the city of Atlanta, many of whom were politically connected. And the picture that was painted of Wayne Williams is a far cry from, you know, a sadistic killer. So I'm briefly going to go over the life of Wayne Williams. Wayne Bertram Williams was born May 27, 1958. He is the son of Homer and Faye Williams. Both of his parents were teachers. He grew up in the Dixie Hills neighborhood of southwest Atlanta. During his teen years, he developed an interest in radio and journalism and even started his own small-time radio station. So he was something of a whiz kid, especially with electronics. His father, Homer, was also a freelance photographer who would take pictures and then attempt to sell them to the media. And Williams followed his father into this profession. I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty of this part of Williams' life. Um, He was something of a braggart who liked to present himself as being more than he was. The things he wrote down on his resume, you know, stretched the truth quite a bit. Um, He tried to present himself as being heavily involved in you know, Atlanta's media community and as having worked for a number of the TV stations as well as a few of the radio stations. At some point, Williams decided that he would be great as a music manager. He saw himself in the vein of Joe Jackson and Barry Gordy from Motown Records, and as such, he began seeking young children, preferably boys, who had some musical uh, inclination, whether it was singing or playing an instrument, and he would go to talent shows uh, throughout the city of Atlanta looking for potential prospects, and he operated out of an old recording studio, well, at the time it was a state-of-the-art recording studio that had been owned by the porn king of Atlanta, Mike Thevis. Thevis at the time was in prison on murder charges, and because of this, uh, the federal government sold off a lot of his assets. So, Williams was finding all these young boys and girls and bringing them to this recording studio, having tryouts with them, getting them to record songs and do demos for what he said was a group that he was starting called the Gemini, named after his birth sign. And in 1980 is when the Flyers 
looking for children who had a musical inclination between a certain age range began appearing in and around Atlanta. These were from Rain Williams, and these two contain the address Fort Cap and Pegs, a place that Williams said he had never been to nor did he frequent. So right there we have verifiable proof that Williams did indeed have contact with young kids and in fact a couple of the murder victims had stated that they were going to be meeting with or had met with a local music manager. Was this Wayne Williams? We may never know, but those are the facts uh, as they were at this time. And Williams really played this up to the media, trying to present himself as, you know, again, being much bigger than he actually was, presenting himself as a mover and shaker among, you know, Atlanta's musical community, somebody who could get things done and had connections. Yet, put it bluntly, you know, Williams really was overstating the facts of who he was in every aspect of his life. According to Williams, he was attracted to women. Uh, he had had a couple of girlfriends, although this cannot be verified. So that is one of those things that goes into the column that you know makes him a very likely suspect in all of this. None of this, however, was really known to the media or the police at this point. They just had, you know, what the police had told them, what the police had found out for themselves, uh, and what they had decided to report, which wasn't much. And then the interview Williams had granted. There was something of a death watch going on in Atlanta because of all of this. As I stated, the media was camped out on Williams' street watching the house almost round the clock waiting for something to happen. That is what we are going to cover next week because I'm going to cut it off here. Um, Next week, we're going to dive into the arrest and trial of Wayne Williams, and then I'm going to get into what I think happened. So that is the death cast for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, maybe you'll learn something new that you didn't already know concerning the Atlanta child murders. Again, if you like the show, please like, subscribe, share it on social media. Uh, leave a five-star review at your favorite podcast app. And until next week, stay morbid.
Welcome, welcome, welcome to, to the Dead Cast.